The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always take a few moments to have silent prayer so that you can have the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. 1 John 1, 9 states that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is not a matter of salvation, but is a matter of the ongoing spiritual life of the believer after salvation. Salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone, recognizing that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins at the cross. But after we're saved, we still sin. We, our sin nature is not limited. Our sin nature is not diminished. Our sin nature is still capable of committing any and every sin that we could commit as an unbeliever. And so whenever we commit a sin, those sins hinder and break our fellowship with God. We stop walking by the Spirit. We start walking according to the flesh. And at the point of sin, we stop abiding in Christ in order to recover the filling of the Spirit and walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ, we have to confess our sins, which means that in the privacy of our souls in silent prayer, we just admit to God what we have done, the sins we've committed, and He instantly forgives us. Those sins are forgotten and separated from us as far as the East is from the West, and He will remember those sins no more. And we recover the filling of the Spirit so that we can continue our spiritual growth and spiritual advance. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are a sovereign God and that all history is under your control. Even in the midst of the crises that this nation faces, no matter what might happen, no matter what terrorist attacks might be successful, no matter what may take place economically with the stock market, we know that in good times and bad times and wonderful times and in horrible times, you are in control. And Father, we know that what enables us to handle whatever adversities there are in life, whatever difficulties we may face, that which enables us to live in the midst of those, those circumstances is the absolute truth of your word. The highest form of worship, therefore, for the believer is to submit to the teaching of your word that we might learn to think as you think, that we might have our thoughts replaced by your thoughts, that as we study your word and learn the doctrine that you have for us, that it teaches us how to think, how to respond to the adversities of life, and how to handle whatever difficulties may come our way, that we may make decisions that glorify you that we might advance to spiritual maturity and thus glorify you in our testimony before both men and angels. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, that as we focus on them, concentrate on them, that the Holy Spirit would use them to uh, continue to produce spiritual growth in us and that we might come to a greater comprehension of this most difficult of all subjects, and that is uh, love for you and love for other believers. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. 
and we continue our study in 1 John as John continues his discourse on uh, the application of Jesus' command in John 13, 34, and 35, and that is that the believer is to love one another, that is related to other believers, to love one another as Christ has loved us. This is one of the most difficult things for people to understand, especially modern Americans to understand, because our thinking is permeated by, with the false concepts of love that is uh, promoted by our culture. Love is not emotion. Love is not sentiment. Love is not feeling. Love in the Bible is something that is profoundly different. And we see that the starting point to understand love in the Scriptures is not personal experience. It's not those wonderful, warm, and stimulating feelings we have when we are involved with people we enjoy and people who um, we love and appreciate. But the starting point is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 where John said, By this we know love, because he laid down his life as a substitute for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So the focus of this isn't simply, as we have discussed many times, the spiritual skill of impersonal love for all mankind. And what I mean by impersonal love is that it doesn't involve a personal relationship. The love is no different to someone you know than someone you don't know. But in impersonal love, it emphasizes not the object of love, but your own character developed through the study of the Word and growth produced by the Holy Spirit. But it is a love for believers. Jesus Christ cranked the expectation and the demand up a notch in the New Commandment. In the Old Commandment, it's getting a little warm in here. Uh, in the Old Commandment, it was to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That was Leviticus chapter 18, verse 16. But in the new commandment is that we are to love one another as Christ has loved the church. So the model, therefore, to understand love is to look at the cross. And the more you study the doctrines of salvation and what took place on the cross and all that was involved in Jesus Christ's uh, sacrifice on the cross as he paid the penalty for us, the more you understand that, the more you will come to understand what love is. The more you come to understand what love is as it relates to God, the more you will be able to understand what love is as it relates to your own personal uh, experience in terms of your marriage relationships, in terms of your friendships, in terms of romances, in terms of your relationships with every other human being. So if you do not understand the love of God, that is God's perfect love for mankind, then you cannot understand love in the human realm. All you will have is just a pale imitation and probably a distortion of love. So John has spent much of his discourse starting in this section of love back in John, First uh, John 3.10b. He begins to talk about love even though he uh, introduced it at the very beginning of the epistle in the introduction in First John uh, chapter 2 verses 4-9. We'll look at those again in the course of this morning. Now, we come to 1 John 4, 19. Now, for, let's look at the context. It began in verse 17. John stated there, Love has been brought to completion among us. Uh, the King James translated it perfected. It's not perfected. It's the Greek verb teleao, which I have discussed many times, which means to bring to maturity or bring uh, to completion. The point that John is making in this section is the manifestation of the love of God in every believer. Skip back to verse 8. There we read, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Love is uniquely spoken of as, as a summation of all that God is. We have another passage in 1 John 1, 6 where he says that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So in these two passages... What John does is he's going to take light, which usually refers to God's holiness and His righteousness, and God's love, and he's going to take these two concepts, interrelate them, and he's going to use them to summarize all of the attributes of God. So when John says in verse 8, God is love, verse 9, in this, the love of God was manifested to us. Again, he reminds us of the cross. Again, he goes to the cross as the model for understanding what love is. And then he said, says in verse 11, 
If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So there's the mandate for the believer. Then in verse 12, he says, no one has seen God at any time. See, God's love is manifested or seen where? At the cross. But no one has seen God at any time. And if we love one another, God abides in us. His love has been brought to maturity in us. And therefore, because God is love, as he states again in verse 16... When we're abiding in God and God's abiding in us, then His love is displayed in us. And when people want to know something about God, that witness is in the believer's life, the mature believer who is exemplifying the love of God. That's his basic argument. That is what John is driving home in the believer's life, is that God wants to display His character through the believer so that for people to know God whom they cannot see, They get a glimpse of what God is like by looking at the mature believer who is going to exemplify divine love in his life. Now, as I've said, this isn't going to happen because you wake up in the morning and pull yourself up by your spiritual bootstraps and say, I'm going to show love today. We can't force this. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It comes as a consequence of our continuous walking in the light, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ that we've studied so much. As we abide in Christ and we study His Word and we implement His Word. We're told that if you abide in Me and I in you, then, then, then I will bear much fruit. And as Jesus Christ bears fruit in us, what we learn is that if we abide in His Word, His Word will abide in us. And so that dimension of it is brought in. And it's tied to the Holy Spirit who produces fruit. And what we have studied is that it's the, the Spirit of God through the Word of God in our souls that produces the character of God in the child of God. And so that the world can look at us and see something about what God is like as we advance in spiritual maturity and demonstrate this love. That's what he means in verse 17 when he says, Love has been brought to completion among us. It has been brought to maturity in us. This isn't something that happens to the young believer. And as a young believer, you're, you're just learning your basic spiritual skills. You're learning to confess your sins when you sin so that you can... Enjoy fellowship with God and walk by means of the Spirit because when you sin, you break that fellowship. You are no longer walking by the Spirit. You learn what it means to walk by the Spirit. That that is an active mental attitude of dependence upon God the Holy Spirit, specifically through His Word. It's not this sort of mystical uh, inner guidance that somehow God, God is going to speak to me through some inner light and I'm going to have some sort of uh, inner radar that's going to uh, click off and and that's how I know what to do. But we studied that in Galatians 5, two or three years ago, showing that we're to walk in the footsteps of the Spirit, and the footsteps, that, that path, that pattern, that, that clear uh, track that the Holy Spirit has set before us is in the Word of God. That's where we have that objective, clear track laid out for us, and we're to walk down that track. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit produces fruit in us, and as we get past those basic skills of, of the faith rest drill where we're mixing our faith with the promises of God. And as we get past uh, the basic skills of grace orientation where we recognize uh, that all that we have and all that we are is due to what God has done and not who we are or what we've done. As we've learned that salvation is completely dependent upon what Jesus Christ did on the cross and that the main maintenance of that salvation is completely dependent upon what Christ did on the cross and that our, our sanctification, our spiritual growth, is dependent upon the Holy Spirit, not on works. We're not under the law, but we are under the Spirit, and we are to apply the Word of God, and the Spirit of God then produces fruit in our lives. As we go through, master those basic skills of the faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, and as we understand hope, and we're going to sing a hymn on, on hope at the end of the service, and hope means confident expectation, and when you sing that hymn, you need to think in terms of what those words mean in light of what we study. And that our hope is in the Lord. Our confident expectation is in God. We, we live today in light of reality. And as you do that and master these skills, then what will begin to appear in your life because you have come to know God through the study of His Word, you will come to love God more than just that, that infantile, uh, childish appreciation for the fact that we're not going to end up in the lake of fire and that Jesus saved us, but but a more profound, deep, mature love, the love of an adult child for an adult parent. And that is what John speaks of in John, 1 John 4, 17. Love has been brought to maturity among us in this, that we may have boldness or confidence 
in the day of judgment. And I noted that that means that only when we hit spiritual adulthood do we start to really produce fruit, gold, silver, and precious stones, Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 3, that is rewardable at the judgment seat of Christ. And so in the day of judgment, there is not the great white throne judgment at the end of the millennium, but it's the judgment seat of Christ for all believers in heaven during that time known as the great tribulation on earth. So that's the evaluation of the believer in terms of what he has done with the time allotted him on earth. And then verse 18, we read, there's no fear in love. In other words, the context indicates that we're not afraid of loss or shame at the judgment seat of Christ because we have matured in love. Mature love casts out fear. As we mature in love, we no longer need to be fearful of shame at the judgment seat of Christ. John says fear involves torment because we recognize that at the judgment seat of Christ, when those who just have wood, hay, and straw are going to lose everything but their salvation, they're not going to have eternal rewards. They're not going to have a role and responsibility in the kingdom. They'll be there, but they'll be uh, the street sweepers. They won't have much to do because they never develop capacity for the spiritual life, capacity for uh, leadership or responsibility because they, they will enter the kingdom with no doctrine in their soul. See, the doctrine you have in your soul that you've mastered is when you die and are face-to-face with the Lord, that's the doctrine you take with you when you go into the uh, millennial kingdom. And then we come to 1 John 19, uh, 4.19 where we read, We love Him because He first loved us. Now, most of you are looking at your New American Standard Version, or perhaps one or two of you might have a New International Version, and you will look at that and you'll say, well, wait a minute, Robbie, you read this, you said, we love Him. Now, I don't have a Him in my Bible. Now, if you're using a King James Version, or a New King James Version, or uh, Reverend Ingram down there is using his uh, majority text, he's looking at the, and he knows there's a Him there. And this brings up a rather complicated subject I'm going to try to uh, simplify and not oversimplify called a a textual problem. So we have to just review some things about how we got the Bible and the Bibles that we have. First point, there are basically three Greek New Testaments available for study today. Basically three Greek New Testaments for study today. The first is called the Nestle-Allen text, named after... um, Uh, I forget, Nessel and Kurt Olland, who uh, were the Greek scholars who have put together this text. It's also published by the uh, United Bible Society, so sometimes it's called the UBS text. It's also called the critical text. There's a little uh, footnotes at the bottom that indicate when there are various manuscripts have different readings. See, it's not like that we are missing anything in the Word of God, but we have over 5,000 manuscripts of of the Greek New Testament. And these manuscripts don't always agree. Just like if I were to stand up here and and dictate a chapter of the Bible to you and you were to follow and write it down, what would happen is that there would be mistakes made. I might make a mistake and I might be reading a line that ended in one word and two lines later uh, a line ends in that same word and I might skip a couple of lines and so I might not uh, read it correctly and you might all write it down wrong because I made the mistake. Some of you would just leave out a word. You wouldn't hear it right or you wouldn't remember it right. Now, uh, uh, up until the 4th century, that wasn't the process of copying. The process of copying was that, that one scribe would, would sit in his chair and he would open the original scroll out in front of him and he would read the line out loud to get it into memory. See, that's a key thing in reading. For those of you who are young or your parents, if you're teaching your kids in school, if they're writing papers... They need to develop, to develop the skill of reading the papers out loud to themselves when they proofread them. You'll catch many errors in your writing by reading out loud that you won't catch if you're just looking at it on the paper. So they would read it out loud, roll up the scroll, stick it in a slot, pull out the copy, roll it out between their, their, uh, their legs. They were sitting on a stool. They, would, they didn't have desks as, as we know desks. What they would do is they would roll the scroll out on, across the top of their thighs and then they would spread their knees apart, which would create tension in the papyrus and uh, a harder surface, and then they would write on that. Well, sometimes they might, re- might not remember the entire phrase or would remember it wrong, and so errors crept into to the text. But because we have so many different manuscripts, you develop the art of what's called textual criticism, where you learn to 
uh, scholars have learned to analyze the history of these different texts and can uh, notice that there are certain errors that are perhaps common to a certain group of manuscripts, so they must all come from a common source, and, and uh, they do their studies like that. And so um, you have one version called the uh, critical text or the UBS or Nestle Allen text, and that is the Greek text that is the foundation for almost all modern versions, such as the New American Standard Bible, the New International Version. Uh, almost every other modern translation relies on the critical text. And if you will notice, if you have one of those Bibles, don't take the time now, but if you go to the end of, of Mark, for example, there'll be a bracket on the last verses in the Gospel of Mark and a little footnote that says these verses are not in the oldest and best manuscripts, so it probably wasn't part of the original. Well, that was the view of, of uh, the, the, these particular Greek scholars who edited this, this text. And their view was based on the idea that the older texts, the older texts are the best texts, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The uh, point number two, the critical text follows a certain way of deciding between different readings by emphasizing the oldest manuscripts, which are usually classified as the Alexandrian text. Alexandria was in North Egypt, and there are several manuscripts that were discovered in the 19th century that all date from the 3rd to 4th century A.D. Now, that's roughly 200 to about 375 A.D. That's within 100 to... 275 years of the original writings of Scripture. Now, prior to their discovery, perhaps the oldest manuscripts that we had could be dated around 500 to 600 A.D. And so the idea was these are much older, therefore closer to the original. They must be more accurate. Well, a lot of issues enter into this that I'm not going to uh, go into this morning because I would lose probably 80% of you with the technicalities. But suffice it to say, in a simple illustration, let's say you have the original here. Original is document O. And you have, let's say, X for the first gen- copy, X2 for the second copy, and X3 is the third copy of that original. Now, in X2, you have certain omissions began to come in because, remember, scribes were paid for what they wrote. And they would contract for the payment of a, of a copy. And they might say, okay, well, I need a copy of 1 John. Um, I'll, pay you, I'll pay you so many, uh, uh, so much money for copying 175 pages. Well, now the, the scribe's copy, he realizes this is going to come out to 195 pages. I, I, I'm really getting shortchanged here. So he starts entering in a lot of abbreviations because he wants to make, get more bang for his buck. So, and in the process, things would get left out that he thought, well, maybe that wasn't in the original. And other things also came in. For example, in the Alexandrian Library, when the Alexandrian Library was founded by the Greeks back in about the um, second century uh, BC, they were in competition with the major Greek libraries in Athens. And they wanted everybody to think they had a better library and they had better manuscripts and better copies. So the, um, the, the, the uh, scribes down in a- Alexandria would start putting a little notation on manuscripts out to the side that would look something sort of like a percentage mark like that that was called an obelisk. And they would put this out to the side and it indicated that we're not sure this was really in the original. And what they were doing was they were engaged in a propaganda campaign to, di- to make it look as if Alexandria had better manuscripts than those Greeks up in Athens. And so that was one factor, and this developed, uh, was a cultural factor in, in, the, in, in scribal practices in Egypt. Now, these older documents are all part of the Alexandrian family, and they include um, uh, Codex A, which is called Codex Alexandrinus, Codex B, which is Codex Vaticanus, and then you have Codex Aleph, which is Sinaiticus. And uh, these were discovered in the, uh, in the 19th century along with another papyri P46. And these all date to the 3rd to 4th century and are all considered to be, uh, uh, if all four of these agree, then that must be the original reading. But if you've got omissions, going back to this, uh, 
analogy. You've got the original document here. This X marks the first copy. X2 is a copy of the first copy, and now there's some omissions. And then you come to the third copy, and it's got those same omissions. Plus, and let's say the date on this manuscript is 150 A.D. And Codex Alexandritis, Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, and P46 are all excellent copies of X3, but it has omissions. So they all date from the 4th century. But let's say you have another copy over here, X, and you get a copy from it, XA, and there's no omissions. This is still pretty accurate. And then you have XB, and it has, let's say, some omissions, but it's minus, oh, it's not as many as omissions as X3 over here. And then the next surviving copy of that family is a perfect rendition of X6, but it's done in the 9th century A.D., and it has a few om omissions or problems, but not as many as, as X3. You now have a 9th century with minus O versus a 4th century or 3rd century manuscript with O+. plus. So you see, older is not necessarily better. But that was the dominant theory in weighing manuscripts up until, uh, I mean, that was developed in the late 19th century and is what underlies what's called the critical text or the, and that text is what underlies most modern versions. In contrast to this, there's a second Greek text called the TR or the Textus Receptus. For you historians, TR is not Teddy Roosevelt. It's the Latin Textus Receptus, which means the received text. And this was basically the Greek text that was the foundation for the King James Version uh, translation in, the, in 1611. And the TR was based on only eight or nine Greek manuscripts that they had at that time, the oldest of which went back to only the ninth century. So the TR is the basis for the King James Version and the New King James Version. Now, there is a third Greek text, and that's called the Majority Text. And the Majority Text is a view of textual criticism that has developed in the 20th century. And often it's confused with the TR by its, um, those who don't agree with it. But actually, there's over, uh, I think there's over actually 1,200 differences between the Majority Text and the TR. So it's not exactly the same, but it's closer to the TR than it is with the critical text, and the majority text is, is, the idea there is that the reading that's in the majority of manuscripts is the correct reading. Now, again, I'm not going to bore you with all the statistics and probabilities and mathematics that, go, that underlies much of that view, but suffice it to say, if we go back to look at what, what I have here on the overhead, if you want to really simplify it, the critical text says if three of these four older manuscripts agree, then that's what must be in the original. The majority text says if the majority of the other text, the majority reading in the other text uh, is against this, then the majority text view must be taken. And see, uh, textual scholars have identified, there's some debate over this, but have identified four large groups of families that seem to have certain of manuscripts that have certain characteristics. There's the um, Alexandrian group, which is North Africa, and also we've got to remember North Africa was the seat of a lot of heresy, so all of that plays into understanding how, the, how uh, that might have affected copyists and scribes and their theology and things of that nature. So you have the Alexandrian text type, a Western text type that was pr prominent in Rome and Italy and and in Europe, a uh, what they call the Byzantine text type, which is uh, predominant up in the uh, Greek, Turkey, Asia Minor, the area, and that particular area. And then a fourth text type called the Caesarean text type, which was found in uh, around I Israel and Syria and in that area of the, of the Middle East. So they've basically identified these four texts. Some debate as to the legitimacy of the Caesarean text type, but majority texts will say if the Byzantine manuscripts and the Western manuscripts all agree against these four or five Alexandrian texts, then this must be the correct reading. So 
So, having said all of that, uh, point number five, my inclination. I am not a textual critic. And there's much in all of this that I need to learn and, and I continue to study. My inclination is that the majority text is probably more likely than not to be the superior reading. I just I tend to go more with a majority text reading than uh, not when there is some sort of, of uh, controversy. Uh, the evidence that we have on this particular passage is that Codex Vaticanus and Codex Alexandrinus, two of the Alexandrian manuscripts, omit the Greek word auton, which is translated him. In other words, in those two manuscripts, they read, we love because he first loved us. All the Byzantine family group and the Western text type include this pronoun. They all read, we love him. And the third of the big three, or actually the big four that I had up there, uh, uh, in terms of the uncials, Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, and Alexandrinus, Sinaiticus doesn't have him, it has theon. It's a more precise form of the pronoun. It says, we love God. So you can group it there, because it has the, the direct object of the verb. You could group it along with the Byzantine and Western text type. So there's only a, a few manuscripts that don't have a direct object for the verb here. Now that's important because there's quite a bit of difference between a statement, we love, which is just talking about we love in general. We love because he first loved us. Or, we love one another because he first loved us. Or, we love him because he first loved us. Now, as you see, it makes a tremendous amount of difference what you have there. Furthermore, if you look at verses 20 and 21, where we have an example given. So, you have a proposition stated in verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. Now we're going to have an example of the application of this given in verses 20 and 21. And the example is, if someone says, I love God. See, when the example comes up in terms of the internal context, it has the direct object of God uh, as the object of the verb. And that supports the fact that it's, that it's more pro- much more probable because of context that somehow in terms, in, in, in copying in the uh, North African area, they dropped out that third-person pronoun. And so I would support a reading. I think it's much more likely both on uh, external evidence in terms of the history of the, of the manuscripts as well as the internal evidence of the context that the better reading is we love him because he first loved us. Now, you know what pastors have to do in their studies sometimes. Just to, just to Before you can ever figure out what the text says, you have to spend some time figuring out what the text is. And that takes a tremendous amount of work sometimes, and, and it's very important to understand what the Word of God is before we begin to understand exactly what it says, especially when you have a multiplication of modern translations today where people look at their Bible and say, well, I don't understand why he's spending so much time about we, us loving God when I don't even have that in my Bible. So now you know, and you can just make a note of that. We love him because he first loved us. So the emphasis here is that the divine, that it is the divine initiative of love that is the basis for the believer's love. It is God's initiative of love toward us that is the basis, that is the motivation, that is the foundation for the believer's love for one another. Every love that you have either directed toward God or toward man, is on a foundation of God's love. We love Him because He first loved us. So the emphasis here is on first loving God. So we need to look at a couple of points. Uh, First of all, the first person pronoun, we and us, must continue to be understood in the context of the epistle as the apostolic community. Now remember, going all the way back to the beginning of 1 John. In the beginning of 1 John, we read that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. Who's the we there? It wasn't the we, John and the congregation, because they didn't see Jesus. They didn't handle Jesus. They weren't witnesses to his, 
his life in the incarnation. The we there refers to we apostles and those who are our immediate associates in Jerusalem. And throughout this epistle, the meaning of the we never changes. It's always, Paul, I mean, John is always talking about we in terms of the apostolic community, that is, the apostles and their uh, immediate assistants and those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life during the incarnation, which is point number two. The we, therefore, does not mean we Christians or we human beings, but we apostles as spiritually mature believers. Now, that's important to note because he's developed that in the, in, in the flow of the discussion in First John that love comes as a result of maturity. We know that we love him because we keep his commandments. You can't keep his commandments unless you know his commandments. You can't know His commandments unless you're spending time making the study and learning of His commandments a priority in your life. So, love is clearly a product of maturity. So, when John says, we love Him, he's saying, we apostles love Him because He first loved us. And and we love Him, that shows that we have reached some level of spiritual maturity. That's point three. Therefore... We spiritually mature believers who have matured in our personal, we, per, we, excuse me, I miswrote that. We spiritually mature believers who have matured in our personal love for God have done so only because of the divine initiative of God. We have matured only because of God's divine initiative. It didn't start with us, it starts with Him. We have to understand that everything begins with God, not with us. And if God is not our ultimate reference point for understanding love, and in fact, in understanding everything about life, then we will never correctly understand anything in life. We may correctly understand some things about life, but in terms of how it fits into the overall picture, it will always be missing something. So point four, first God loved us, then as we learned doctrine and understood the many aspects of our salvation and the unique spiritual life of the church, we began to love Him. Our love for Him only comes as a result of learning and developing an understanding of everything that He is and everything that He has done for us. So how did God first love us? Three, Four points. How did God first love us? First of all, you have the divine initiative of antecedent grace. The divine initiative of antecedent grace. Antecedent means previous, that which comes uh, before, that which comes actually in eternity past. Antecedent grace emphasizes the fact that before you existed, before any human being existed, in fact, prior to the creation... All the way back in eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had a conference called the Doctrine of Divine Decrees. And in the Divine Decree, God in His omniscience, that means God knows all the knowable, God knew that He would create the human race. God also knew that the human race would sin. And God knew that He would determine that He would provide salvation. So in the divine decree, which included all of these facets, He looks at human history, and on the basis of His love, He is going to express His kindness to man through grace. Grace is unmerited favor. In eternity past, His grace which is outlined in the divine decree, His grace is focused on future creatures who do not deserve His love or kindness, and yet He is going to provide a solution to the sin problem based on who He is and not on who they are. So this is the divine initiative of antecedent grace. It means that the undeserved merit of God began in eternity past, millions and millions of years ago before any of us ever existed 
God loved us. God loved you billions and billions of years ago. He knew you were an undeserving sinner, and despite that, on the basis of His character and not yours, He devised a perfect plan of salvation. So point two, the object of antecedent grace is fallen man. The object of antecedent grace is fallen man. What God is looking at in eternity past is not perfect man as a as an unfallen creature, but the object is fallen, sinful man. Man who is at enmity with him. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. Grace focuses us on us as excuse me, as obnoxious, undeserving, fallen creatures. Creatures who do not deserve anything from God, and yet, and nevertheless, despite our sinfulness, despite our rebellion, despite our obnoxiousness, God is still going to provide for us. So that brings us to point three, is that antecedent grace then is the basis for this reciprocal love. We love Him because He loved us. That's a reciprocity. So reciprocal love then is a response to the love God initiated in eternity past. In other words, we learn to love God because we understand through Bible doctrine what He has done for us in salvation. We learn through Bible doctrine the 40 things that God has provided for us at salvation. We learn that He has given us everything we need in order to handle every situation in life. We know that He has given us the Holy Spirit who is the one who helps us to understand His Word, and the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the power and the ability to apply His Word and to face any and every circumstance in life. So as we come to understand all of these things, and we study and learn about positional truth, and we come to understand various doctrines related to the filling of the Holy Spirit, abiding in Christ, walking in the Holy Spirit, we learn about our priesthood, we learn all of these things, then we begin to appreciate all that God has for us, and the response is that we grow in our love for Him because we are grateful for what He has done in His grace for us. So we move from the divine initiative of antecedent grace to its effect in us, which is a reciprocal love, which responds to the eternal love of God for the church-age believer as we learn what He has done for us. This means that as God has loved every church-age believer, even the most obnoxious believer you know, I want you to think in your mind, without getting involved in any mental attitude sin, the most obnoxious Christian that you know. Now, God loves him just as much as he loves you. God loves her just as much as he loves you. And that love has nothing to do with how idiotic or obnoxious or rude or insensitive that person is. It has to do with who God is. And that's the basis for reciprocal love. Because God loves us, we love Him. And because we love Him, we're to love those whom God loves. Because they're part of the body of Christ, part of the family of God. And so we are to love others in the body of Christ in the same way that God has loved us. And Shakespeare said, "I, there's the rub. That's where it gets difficult. Because we can't do that on our own. And, and we certainly point out the fact that love in that context certainly doesn't have anything to do with warm, sentimental feelings. Because when you think of that person that, that is obnoxious, that's a believer, you certainly don't have warm, sentimental feelings generated in in your heart, thinking, oh, I just can't wait to spend time with them. In fact, when you see them, you can't wait to figure out how far you can get from them. So the only thing that can change that is the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And that's the transformation that only comes as we reach a mature love and a spiritual maturity. So reciprocity begins with us loving God because He loved us, and then it moves from that as the foundation to where our love for God becomes the motivation for loving one another. Because 
we love God, and God loves that obnoxious son of Belial, that means, therefore, we are motivated to demonstrate that same kind of love. Now, notice, that same kind of love doesn't mean running up to them, giving them a hug, and, and emoting all over them. That isn't what that means. To understand what that love means, it's got to go back to 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that God sent His Son to die as a substitute for us. In other words, it, and, and it goes even further to where we would give our own life for that other person. In fact, it's got to be built on character, and it's got to be built on an understanding of absolute reality and not on anything in that other person's life. But it's based totally and exclusively on appreciation for who God is and what He has done so that the basis for being able to love one another is never that individual that we are loving. It is always focused on and grounded in the character of God. So that brings us to a review of the essence of God. We have to understand the attributes of God. This down to ten basic attributes that help us to understand who God is. Now remember, these are we, we break it out like this in order to teach this and in order to understand God, but, but all of these are true of God all the time in every way. Just as a person who knows you might be able to list 10 or 12 characteristics or attributes uh, that characterize you, but those are not always evident every moment of every day, but they are true of you in the complex of your personality all the time, and these 10 are true of God equally and all the time and for all eternity. First, He is sovereign, that is, He is the ruler of the universe. And nothing happens in the universe outside of His ultimate control. He allows sin to reign and operate during human history because He is producing something of a higher good. But He is still in control. Second, He is righteous. Righteousness refers to the absolute standard of His character. He is absolute perfection, not because He meets some other standard of perfection, but because He is the standard of perfection. See, see, too often when we think of God as, we say God is perfect, we have some abstract notion of what perfection is, and, and you really hear this from the liberals, well, I don't understand how a loving God can send His creatures to hell. See, what they've got is some abstract notion of perfection that they're trying to make God fit. But see, God is the definition of perfection. And so when God says that, that uh, uh, creatures who have rejected my grace provision of salvation are going to be condemned for eternity in the lake of fire, that defines what righteousness is. See, righteousness isn't some pseudo-sentimental concept of, promoted by liberal theology that is uh, developed on the basis of human experience. Righteousness begins with God's revelation of Himself in Scripture. Justice is the application of that righteousness towards man. What the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses. What the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. And then God is love. And too often people try to uh, juxtapose love and righteousness uh, with the same, same sentence, same objection I just articulated that how can a righteous God send his creatures to the lake of fire? They never ask the, the question how can, a, how can a righteous God let unrighteous creatures into his, uh, into his heaven? But see, love and righteousness work together in perfect harmony, and that's part of what we'll see in a minute as part of the integrity of God. And then fifth, God is eternal life. There's no beginning or end with Him. He always was and always will be, and He is eternal. He is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows all the possible things that can happen. Not just what will happen, but what would have happened if you had grown up in California instead of wherever you grew up, except for Jim. He had, grown up in, he had grown up in Connecticut instead of California. Who knows where he would be today? But God knows. See, he knows all the options. He's omniscient. He knows what could have happened, and he knows what will happen. Omnipresent, that means he is equally present to every part of his creation at all times. God is as fully present uh, at the outer extremities of the universe, as he is here, as he is in California, some may question that, but as he is in, in the Middle East, he is equally present to every part of his creation at every instant in time. He is omnipotent. That means 
that He is able to do everything He intends to do, and He is in control of His creation. He is veracity. That means He is absolute truth. What He says is absolute truth. He defines reality. And finally, He is immutable. That means God never changes. Now we look at these attributes, and we're going to highlight four of them. Got the animation got screwed up on this slide. Here we look at his attributes, and we're going to take three, his righteousness, justice, and love, and, and, a, and a fourth, that is truth, and we're going to spotlight those as his integrity, because the psalmist says righteousness and love are the foundation of your throne, justice and truth go forth from it. And so this demonstrates that righteousness, justice, love, and truth work together. The righteousness is the absolute standard of his character. Justice is the application of that standard. It, his uh, application toward mankind is motivated by his, uh, undeserving, uh, by his unconditional love and is based on absolute truth. It never changes. So that what the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses. What the righteousness of God rejects, which is every fallen creature, the justice of God condemns. But the love of God motivated him to provide a perfect solution which is expressed through the grace of God. Now, why isn't grace an attribute? The reason grace isn't an attribute is because an attribute as a primary characteristic of God must be something that is true of God throughout all eternity and is not dependent on a creature for its expression. See, God can be loved throughout all eternity because the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Father loves the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit loves the Father, the Holy Spirit loves the Son, and the Son loves the Holy Spirit. So for all eternity, God has a per within the Trinity, God has per three perfect objects for His love. So He is eternally loved. But God cannot be eternally gracious because grace demands a real or perceived undeserving object. It's the, you, if there's not a creature out there either perceived in the future or in actual existence, God can't show grace. So grace is dependent on a creature for its function. So grace isn't an attribute. It is the expression of His attribute of love. Now, another way that we could look at this I've got to rework my animation on this chart, but we have these attributes of God in sort of an uh, sort of an outer circle, and in the midst of it, we have His perfect righteousness, His absolute justice. We have the function of His love in terms of grace, and at the core of His being, we have love. God is love. John tells us twice in this passage, verse eight, and in verse sixteen, He says, "God is love." And it is that love that motivates his righteousness and justice to supply a perfect solution for man through his grace, and that was performed at the cross. None of us deserve salvation. There is not one single thing that any of us could ever do to deserve the love of God. But God loves us because of who he is, and he is able to demonstrate that love to you because of what Christ did on the cross. And Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin in human history so that having satisfied the righteousness of God by His perfect life, satisfying the justice of God by His, uh, the payment of a perfect penalty for sin, God's love is now free to flow in His grace to undeserving, unmerited mankind. And that's the same basis of why the believer is to love other believers. Not because they deserve it or because you're so great, but because God's righteousness and justice have been satisfied by the death of Christ on the cross so that their sins, which are no better, no worse than your sins, I hate to tell you this. I, I know you're just, you're, you're, you're just caught up in this envelope of realizing that you're really better than that obnoxious person you thought of earlier, but in terms of the absolutes of God's character, you're not any better than they are. Now, I know that bursts some of your bubbles, and some of you are going to try to show why I'm wrong on that for the rest of the day, because you just can't accept the fact that, that in terms of God's standard, you're just as obnoxious as that other person. But you are. And that's why you needed the cross just as much as they need the cross. And because you both are there in God's love because of the cross, 
That's why God says we're to love one another, because that demonstrates to the angels and to mankind as a visible witness what God's love is. And that is just the opposite of the plan and the policy of Satan, which is based on arrogance. See, Satan says you treat people on the basis of who and what they are. And because of who and what I am, Lucifer said, I ought to, be, ought to get all the honor that God gets. And that's the juxtaposition. And so only when we begin to understand grace and grace orientation and realize that everything is dependent upon who and what God is and not on who and what I am, that we can ever, if you haven't mastered that, you'll never get to the point of mastering love. Because love is based on the concept that you understand grace and you have developed genuine humility in your soul. So love, justice, and grace all inter- interact with each other along with God's truth in producing His integrity. Now, here's the application. John says, how do you know this? How are you going to demonstrate this? Well, if someone says, and here we have the if clause, which is a conditional clause, and as I've taught many times, there are four conditional clauses in the Greek, and this is a third-class condition indicated in the Greek by the particle aeon, if someone says. So he's using just a simple hypothetical illustration. He's not talking about something in fact. He's saying if someone says, someone might come along and make a certain claim, and one of you may say, well, I love God. You know I love God. I just, oh, we sang some wonderful hymns this morning. What a friend we have in Jesus. And, oh, wasn't it good to be at church this morning? And we just had all these warm feelings about, about Jesus. And I love God so much. Well, do you really? Well, we're going to have a little barometer here that, from the Word of God that says, if you make this claim that you love God and you hate your brother. See, when you thought of that person earlier today, see how I set you up? You thought of them and you said, man, I just really hate that SOB. That's a son of Belial. Remember, we studied that last time. Well, God just says, if you hate your brother, you can't make the claim that you love me. You are a liar, for the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen can't love God whom he has not seen. See, that puts the emphasis on thought. See, it's not experience. It's not having some encounter with Jesus. It's not having some some warm, fuzzy feeling generated by singing praise and worship music. It is studying the Word of God and basing your understanding of God not on personal experience, but on studying the Word. And if you can't learn to love God whom you haven't seen, what God says is, is that you're not going to be able to love that, that other believer whom you have seen. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21 is going to help us understand the nature and the implication of this reciprocal love that we have that is based in verse 19. So, as we wrap up this morning, I want to cover seven quick points on the why the knowledge of God must precede reciprocity. See, we have to understand reciprocal love, and if you're not reciprocating in your love toward God, real personal love toward God, then you can't apply this toward another believer. Therefore, We have to understand how this develops. Knowledge of God precedes reciprocity. First point, if we humanize the love of God. See, that's what happens is because we think of love in terms of our human experience. If we take that and that becomes our standard for understanding God's love, we'll never understand love in this life and we will never understand Christian integrity. Because as we've just seen, the love of God is the integrity of God. And so if you don't understand God's love for us, you'll never understand how to love God, and that means you'll never make it very far in the spiritual life. Point number two, when believers superimpose their own emotions and motivations on the love of God, they are guilty of humanizing the love of God. See, what we have to do is, we we have to, Instead of humanizing God's love, we have to take our love and deify it. We have to model it after God, not the other way around. So don't superimpose your emotions and your, your motivations on God's love. True love, true divine love, is based on correct thinking. And correct thinking can only come from objectivity. And objectivity can only come from doctrine in the soul. 
And doctrine in the soul only comes because you've made learning doctrine a priority and you're coming to Bible class every chance you get and listening to tapes in between. Third, God is not emotion. God is not emotion. Now, that really shocks a lot of people because they read all these statements in Scripture that are really uh, anthropopathisms and they think that, that God is emotion. But remember, emotion is a response. Emotion is a response to things. For example, if I come in here and I tell you that your, your child was just uh, outside and ran across the, the highway out there and got hit by a car, how are you going to feel? Well, if I come running back in five minutes later and say, no, 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 that's a mistake, nothing happened, it wasn't your child, in fact, it wasn't a child at all, it never happened, now how do you feel? You see, emotion is a response to what you think to be true. So thinking produces a response, and that's emotion. Now, let's take an example in Scripture. At Mount Sinai, God gets angry with Israel, the Bible says. Now, if that anger of God is taken literally, then God is having a, an emotion. That means that God is responding to something that just happened. But in God's omniscience, He has always known from billions and billions and billions of years ago that Israel was going to have, uh, they, they were going to get, get um, uh, have, the, have the golden calf made. And they were going to worship the golden calf and go into idolatry while Moses is up on, on Mount Sinai getting the law. God's always known that. So here are your options. If this is literal, God is eternally angry with Israel. Or God just found out about it. Well, since God's omniscient, He didn't just find out about it. And since He's not eternally angry with Israel, He's not eternally emoting over them, then maybe this is just a figure of speech. Maybe the anger of God is not to be taken literally, but this is just a figurative expression, the Bible is full of idioms, called an anthropopathism, which means that certain activities of God are explained in human terms in order to help us understand His plans and policies. And that the anger of God is really a, an expression, the wrath of God is an expression of His judicial rejection. Perhaps you've gone to court sometime, and if the judge threw the book at you, you might say, boy, the, the, the wrath of, I, I felt the wrath of the judge. But see, the judge should not be emotional and angry if he's a good judge. You don't want an emotional judge. You want a judge that's objective, that's clear thinking, a judge that truly understands the law and can apply it fairly and dispassionately. So when you say, I felt the wrath of the court, you're not saying that he was personally mad at me, but that in his judicial objectivity, I, I was condemned. And I felt the full brunt and force of the law. So the term, the wrath of God, is not a term of emotion, but it's a term of judicial rejection. In the same sense, then, the term, the love of God, is not an emotional term, but it's a term that emphasizes the positive position that every, every believer is in in terms of the thinking of God and that God wants and desires the highest and best for every single uh, human being and therefore He sent a Savior to die on the cross for us. So the love of God is not emphasizing an emotion, but it's emphasizing the positive application of His thinking toward the believer. God knew about us in all eternity past, and it did not diminish His love for us. In other words, His love is not built then on, um, on what we do or say. So point number three, God is not emotion. Point number four, knowledge of God must precede a reciprocal love for God because you can't really understand the love of God unless you understand a lot of things about God that are revealed in Scripture. You can't love someone you don't know. You might emote over someone you don't know. You might have... Uh, uh, be infatuated with someone you, you don't know. You might uh, have lustful feelings for someone you don't know, but you can't love someone that you don't know. Same is true for God. We must learn to know God before we can love God. Fifth, we have to be motivated by knowing the love of God through the doctrine in our soul before we can respond to it. We have to be motivated by knowing the love of God 
before we can respond to it. Understanding God's love for us and then motivates us to love Him and to continue to grow and mature in the spiritual life. Point number six, God knew about everything about us in eternity past. God knew every single sin, yet He still loved us with the same maximum amount of love. And point number seven, if you love God, you will love the Word of God. You will love to study the Word of God. If you do not love to study the Word of God, then you haven't learned to love God yet, and you may never learn to love God because the Word of God is the thinking of God, and to learn to love anybody, you must learn to understand their thinking. Now, next time we're going to come back and we'll look at how reciprocity affects several other aspects of uh, loving God and loving one another. We'll look at its application, reciprocity, and unrealistic expectations in relationships. And then we will apply that to our understanding of 1 John 4, 20 and 21. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to realize uh, the, the, the manifold dimensions of your love for us. And that this is a love that goes far beyond anything that we have ever experienced or could ever experience. And it's a love that we can only understand as we study your word, most, most specifically studying the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity right now to make that sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. All you need to do is believe Christ is the solution and Christ has solved the problem of spiritual death and Christ provides eternal life. It's not a matter of moral reformation, making a bargain with God, joining a church, becoming moral, changing your life, or any other human factor. It's simply a matter of accepting the free gift of salvation given because Christ died on the cross. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today as we come to understand more and more what it means to love you and to love one another. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.